0: I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump into the sermon today. Father, thank you for some time to spend together. And I thank you that you have um, allowed us to, to gather here and to hear your voice, to hear your words speaking to us. And I ask even just now that you would open our hearts, open our minds to receive what you have for us. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, so we, we're in a new series that we started last week called Sense, and uh, I can't recap everything from last week, but the big idea last week is this, that God has saved us, that Jesus has, if you're a Christian, that Jesus has saved you, but he has also sent you. That we say that Jesus is our savior, but he is also our sender. He not only wants to bless you, but he wants to allow your life to be a blessing to those around you, that God has a mission in this world, and he sends us to be be a part of it. And yet, we need more than just this knowledge. We need more than just a knowledge of what God has done for us, or what God has called us to, or how he has sent us. We need more than just a knowledge, and we also need more than just doing the actions of being sent and being a part of God's mission. We need more than either of just knowledge or actions. In fact, one of the most important things one of the most important things that you need uh, to be a part of what God has sent you to do. One of the most important things that you need that without, it can really hinder what God has called you to do or maybe just keep you from engaging at all to begin with. Or with it, it can propel you and, and allow you to experience a deep kind of meaning and purpose as you are part of this. One of the most important things that you need to get right is your motives. We all need to get our motives right. Motives are a really powerful thing, right? I mean, just in life, not not, not necessarily talking about being sent as a part of what God has called us to do, but motives are a really powerful thing there's ever a criminal investigation taking place, and I don't know if this is actually true, but it is on TV, but if there's ever a criminal, so it's probably true, but if there's ever a, at least in CSI, you know, there's a a criminal investigation taking place, the most important thing that they begin with is, well, you know, who murdered the person, who did it, and they go, well, what was the motive, right? Because motive determines our actions, and you can know a lot about someone's actions and what they might be or not be by someone's motives, but, but also that it also determines the reception of somebody's actions. I mean, think about somebody could do the exact same actions to you, but if you think that their motives are bad, you're going to receive that in a different way. We have a word for that. We call it ulterior motives, right? That if someone might have given a bunch of money to charity or someone did some great thing, but you say, yeah, but I think there was ulterior motives happening there. And motives are really important. They determine the course of action. They also determine the reception of that action. And so getting our motives right, even more so than just the knowledge of what we're supposed to do or the actions of doing it, our motives are really important. And if the motives are off, if the motives are off and being a part of what God has sent us to do, then that is where so many of the different problems come from. If you've ever experienced, maybe today you're here, you're not a Christian, or you're kind of just checking out church for the first time, or maybe uh, first time in a long time. Maybe you've experienced people that are really self-righteous, and they're kind of talking down to you, or they're really aggressive, or kind of seeming pushy, and probably because there's some motives that are off. A lot of times the problems that come from being a part of what God has sent us to do, a lot of the problems that stem from that, it's from the motives, or as the people involved in it, maybe you have felt just kind of a, a lack of passion in any way, or you don't really care, or you don't really know what to do even, a lot of that comes from the motives. Or maybe even as you engage in things, you just kind of feel tired or burnt out, a lot of that comes from the motives. But if we get the motives right, if we get the motives right, then so much takes place. If you get the motives right, it changes not just what you do, but it changes how you do it and changes your perspective in the middle of it. It changes the reception of other people in your mission as you are sent. So if you get the motives right, so much changes, and if we ever want to move past fear of being a part of what God has sent us to do, or burden in what God has sent us to do. If we ever want to have a sense of joy, and man, this is deep, meaningful, purposeful stuff that I'm a part of, then we need our motives right. So here, here's our question for today: Is just what can give us a joyful motivation? What can give us a powerful motivation to be a part of what God has sent us to do? To be blessed and be a blessing, to be saved and to be sent? What can give us a joyful, deep, powerful motivation? And understand that we need to look at a few things. We need to see what is the motives that we need and what that changes in our life and how we get those motives. So let's just start with this question, which is, what motives do we need as we are sent? What motives do we need as we're sent? And, and to answer that, I want to look at what God says his motives are. You see, God has a mission, that's what we talked about last week, that God has a mission in the world to bless the world, to have it experience all the fullness and joy and goodness that he originally intended for it to experience. That's God's mission in this world, to have people experience his relational presence and all the blessing that that entails in their life. So what is God's motive? What, is he, what, what drives him? What might move him to the actions that he takes? so let's just look at a few verses that, that tell us what this is. And you can probably already guess what it is. It's, it's nothing necessarily super profound. But what the Bible says is this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It says God so loved. God was filled with love. So that's motivation language, right? To say this so moved him. His heart was filled with love which caused him to send Jesus to this world. Or, here's how it says it in Romans, but God shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What is it? So, you know, if you're a Christian, you, you know this story that Jesus comes to the earth and he dies for people that are sinners. So those that have rejected him or ignored him or dismissed him, that God comes to this earth in Christ and dies for us. Which means in our place for our sins, Jesus dies. What, what is that? It says it's love. That he was demonstrating and showing us, here is my love. Here's what's moving me, motivating me. Or in First John, he says this, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we, should be called his, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. See what kind of love this is. See what's moving him. See what's motivating him. See what's pushing him in a direction to call us his children. It's love and a, a special kind of love. Or in Ephesians, Paul says this, But God, being rich in mercy. Why? Because of the great love. This is what's motivating, right? Because is motivation language. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, which means even while we were still sinners, even when we were against God, even when we weren't interested in God, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Love, love, love. What motive do we need as we are sent? Well, I think we should just begin with saying, what what is God's motives? What drives God? And over and over and over again, what we see is that God's motive is love. Now, Now, here's what's important for you to even just know and understand today is that whatever God is doing in your life, his mission is to love you. Everything that God is after in your life. What God wants in your, look, look how, that didn't stop, right? It, we see love, and I gave you a sampling of, of verses from the Bible, but it's love, 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 love. That didn't stop. It's not like, okay, and now that we did that whole cross thing, and now what's motivating me is something different. Like, what God wants in your life, what God is after in your life, is to love you. Well, we, we used similar language last week, but just to bless you. That, that is what God wants, is to bring love into your life to bring his love into your life and and this is important because sometimes when people think about when people think about kind of what we what we're talking about when people think about God's mission and what he's doing sometimes we even feel man it's actually unloving to push my beliefs on someone it's actually unloving to try to tell somebody else kind of what i believe and i and i don't want to offend people or i don't want to man I, who am i to kind of tell other people what they should believe and 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 there's something that's right about that because you shouldn't be pushy and you shouldn't be a jerk and you shouldn't be self-righteous and all those things that often come from our motives and yet God's love God's love doesn't tell doesn't keep him saying well you know I really don't want to kind of force myself on anyone I really don't want to be pushy about my beliefs God's love moves him to action God's love says, I so love you. I want to show you my love. I want to display my love. I want you to see the kind of love that I have. And so I come to you. I talk to you. I draw you to myself. So what motives do we need? We, we need the same kind of motives that God has, which is love. And when you think about your starting point, when you think about your starting point in considering do I want to be a part of God's mission in this world? Do I want to be sent as Jesus was sent? When you consider that, what, what might be your starting point? A lot of times it might be guilt. I feel bad about this, so I should do it. But that's not what God's motive was. That's not what his starting point was. Or, or maybe it's even just, I want to correct these people because they're wrong. Maybe you hear coworkers talking about um, they talking about certain ideas or some book that they're reading, and you go, "Oh, that's not true." I, let me let me step in and correct you. You hear them making fun of Christians. or You hear them make, well that no, that's not right. Let me show you what. And the motive might be to correct, or it might be to it might be to kind of get some sort of sense of. Um, Justification of hey you know I, I want to be a part of this because maybe I think this is rare but maybe you've got other Christian friends and you want them to see wow wow you're really doing a good job or maybe our starting point when we think about this is really just ourselves just kind of concern for ourselves which means we really don't engage probably our starting point is I'm kind of concerned about myself so what will I do uh, I don't know if I'll do that what will I engage in uh, I don't because our starting point is. Wanting to protect ourselves, concern for ourselves. But if we ever want to be able to be a part of what God has actually designed you to be a part of, if you ever want to be a part of tapping into the very purpose that God has for your life, then we need a different starting point. We need motives that are God's motives, which is love. So if we ever want to join with God's mission, we first have to join with God's heart. If we ever want to join with God's actions, we first have to join with God's motives, which is love. But Second thing is this, what is being motivated by love change? What, what if you were motivated by love? What if it wasn't guilt anymore or it wasn't kind of I just want to correct people or I want to, I, I'm just kind of concerned for myself so there's actually a lack of motivation? What is being motivated by love change? What would happen if you were motivated by love? And we looked at this verse last week, but I just want to show it to you again. Je- Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So Jesus says, as God brought me to this earth, as God sent me into this earth to bless it, in love, that's the same way I'm sending you, which means this. We are sent in the same way that Jesus was sent, which means in actions, yes, but it also means, what we just looked at, in motives. So being motivated by love changes the way we approach things because it means we are sent now in love. So here's a handful of things that this this would change. Let me start with this. here's what happens if you don't have this motive. Here's what it changes. If you don't have this motive, let's start with this. If if you don't, then you will not either begin to be a part of God's mission or you won't sustain it. Meaning you'll start maybe a burst and go, okay, I listened to a sermon, I was motivated and I'm gonna go do something. I'm gonna go try to be a blessing to those around me as God was a blessing to me. I'm gonna maybe try to talk about Jesus to people. I'm gonna go try to build relationships. You go, okay, I'm I'm gonna do it. But without motives of love, you either won't begin in the first place or you won't sustain it. And one of the reasons for that is this. The difficulty is going to be more real than the opportunity. The difficulty that being a part of God's mission brings will be more real to you than the opportunity of what could happen. Let me, let me show you this. There's an article and some research done recently by Barna, which is a major uh, research group. This is from August of this year. Why people are reluctant to discuss faith. And this is just one snippet of what we're talking about, sharing your faith or discussing faith. But here's reasons that people say that they are reluctant to talk about their beliefs, to talk about the things that they would say is the most important to them. And here's some of the, the reasons. Why, why don't you have spiritual conversations more Often, and, and here's what was said. Religious conversations always seem to create tension or arguments. And for those that are Christians, this is the number one reason 29% of people say, this is why I don't do it. Now, that makes sense, right? I mean, you don't, you, don't want to have, uh, you don't want to have arguments, you don't want to have tension. And if, if something deeper is not driving you, that's really difficult, right? So the difficulty of this, the difficulty of what if I get into tension and arguments, the difficulty... Is going to be more real for you than the opportunity of what could happen. Or here's some other things that people say. I'm afraid that people will see me as a fanatic or extremist. That's what 5% of people say, or 10% of millennials say that, which kind of makes sense. Millennials don't want to be seen as fanatics or extremists in any way, and unless it's about LaCroix or something like that, right? Um, so uh, and that's kind of passe now. So what's the new, there's some new one that's like, oh, yeah, that's way better. Okay. So th- but that makes sense, right? You don't want to be seen as a fanatic. You don't want to be seen, That's difficulty. The difficulty will be more real to you than the opportunity. Or I'm put off by how religion has been politicized, 17% of people. So you don't want to kind of be thought of as political as you share your faith. And, and there's kind of this whole crazy political climate around us that you don't want to be associated with. To say, well, I don't, I don't really know if I want to do that. I don't want to be associated with that. And the difficulty is more real than the opportunity. Or I, I don't feel like I know, how, I know enough to talk about religious or spiritual topics, 17%. The, the knowledge barrier, difficulty. Or finally, I don't want to be known as a religious person, 7% of people say this. So, so all of this stuff is difficult, right? All of these things are difficult. And if you're not motivated by love, then you either will not begin in the first place or you won't sustain it. And one of the main reasons for that is because the difficulty of all these different things, or maybe you have different reasons, but the difficulty is going to be more real to you than the opportunity. Let me give you an illustration outside of kind of some of this research and data. Think about, think about the gym, right? And these people, this is from a CrossFit, you know, gym that, I clearly am not a part of, but that I, uh, but that I, that I saw online, which is where I do all my exercise. Um, (laughs) So uh, the, that's true. Um, Don't you get more fit just by looking at fit people, but, but the difficulty is more real than the opportunity. So let me give you an illustration from exercise. Some people, they love, they love to work out, right? I mean, maybe you're one of those people, but some people love to exercise. They love it. They love the feel of spandex on the body, right? They, they love gym selfies and grunting and veins. I mean, they, they just, they love it, right? They, they Whatever reason, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm just inventing stuff clearly because I don't know why someone would love it. Um, I mean, I think there's something called like a runner's high, right? So there's some sort of physiological reason that there's dopamine surging through your body, but whatever, people, some people love it, right? And clearly they do, they, I mean, they're there every day, they're, they're going for it, they, and they don't need any sort of, um, you know, they're not motivated by, well, I hope I lose weight, or New Year's resolution, or not, they're not motivated by that. They love it. It's something that is driving them, so they're willing to put time and money and insanity into it. That's what they're willing to do. Then there's other people. There's other people that feel like they should exercise. That's the majority of us. Uh, They feel like they should exercise. They feel like they should work out. And they're motivated by should. I should do this. But what happens? They do it for a little bit. And then, and by the way, these people always know who you are, right? They can can smell it on you. You smell like fresh gym shorts. They're like, "Mm, those haven't been used yet, you know. And they know and they hate you every January because you crowd their gyms and they just look at their watch and like February, you'll be gone. And it's true. And, you know, sorry to demotivate you, but that's what's going to happen. Unless you love it. <clears throat> but if you feel like you should, here's what, here's what inevitably happens. Here's what inevitably happens, okay? You come up with excuses because the difficulty is more real than the opportunity. You come up with excuses. And so it's like, well, you know, my gym's actually really expensive and I don't have money for that how am I going to buy all my pizza? And you, you, and you, you, you know, money is, money becomes the difficulty. So money becomes real in your mind. Like, well, I should, but my kids, you know, like, you don't have kids. Yeah, but one day I'm going to have them. And I need to start thinking about a babysitter now, you know, you know, these are all just my excuses. Right. And you're like, or I've got no one to go with, or, you know, there's just the excuses. I've got a metal allergy, whatever it is, like, excuses come, right? That's what begins to happen. And the difficulty is more real than the opportunity. And so if you're not motivated by love of the thing, eventually what happens is you come up with excuses and you quit. You don't engage in it anymore. But if, if love is what's motivating you, if the love of the gym and the love of just the workout itself, if the love of the thing itself is what motivates you, then opportunity is more real than difficulty. If you love something, the opportunity, you know this with other areas of your life, right? If you love something, the opportunity, what might happen, what you might be able to do, what might result from it, that is always bigger than the difficulty. So without love, we either don't begin or sustain because the difficulty is more real than the opportunity. Or here's a second reason we won't begin or sustain. Because... If you're only motivated externally, it's hard to continue with something. You, you won't begin or last because if you're only motivated externally, it's hard to continue. So think about this. You might, be, you might be motivated externally, meaning, okay, if I see some sort of results or success, then I'll keep going. So if I see people go, man, I really want to come to church or man, I'm really interested in this God that you're talking about or man. And you go, okay, sweet. I've got some results. So I I want to keep going. That's external motivation. Or maybe it's just kind of somebody is listening to you and they're like, man, you're so smart, man. You so know you know so much about God or kind of those feelings of, yeah, I'm a part of this. And and you're like, okay, so there's some external motivation taking place. But external motivation is never enough to have you begin something or at least to sustain something. Maybe some of you have heard of Daniel Pink. He has kind of one of the most popular uh, TED Talks and has written uh, books and is an author and researcher on motivation and specifically talking about what motivates people in their jobs. But here's just one of the things that he says. He says, the scientists who've been studying motivation have given us this new approach. It's built more around intrinsic motivation, around the desire to do things because they matter, because we like it, they're interesting, or a part of something important. And his whole thing with work and career is you need intrinsic motivation to drive you. And oftentimes in our work, we're driven by external motivation of how much you make or if you're going to get your bonus or uh, losing your job. And those are all external motivators. But research just around the science of motivation says, and you know this, I mean, this is, it's, you know, they, he can have a TED Talk with 22 million views, but it's also common sense to just say when you're intrinsically motivated. When you're intrinsically motivated by liking something or being interested in something or feeling your, uh, what you're doing matters or you're a part of something important, that helps you to actually begin and sustain. That helps you to begin and sustain. So without, without being motivated by love, if you're not motivated by love, it'll be hard to begin something or sustain it, either because the difficulty is more real than the opportunity, or because you're only operating out of external motivation and you lack a sense of internal motivation, which is what love is. So here's what a motive of love changes. It overcomes the difficulty that these things present. It overcomes the obstacles, but it also empowers us to engage as, uh, in God's mission and being a, part of, uh, being a part of God's mission. It empowers us to engage in it in a better way, in a way that is actually like Jesus did, which is what we are called to. Jesus says, the Father sent me, I send you. So if we're sent with the same motives that he is sent with, it actually empowers us to engage in it in a better way. With, let me give you a couple examples of that. The first is that we are willing to then sacrifice, which is what Jesus did. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I send you. Jesus was motivated by love, which means he was willing to sacrifice. See, when you love something, you're willing to sacrifice, Right? whether that's the gym or other things. I mean, when you, when you are operating out of love, you, the, the, the opportunity is always more real, so you are willing to sacrifice. And if you think about it, a lot of the things that keep us from being a part of God's mission, from being sent as he was sent, a lot of the things that keep us from that, what are they? They're fears of, man, but I might have to give up some of my time. I might have to give up some of my money. I might have to give up some of my comfort of just being around people that are different from me. I might have to sacrifice even some of my reputation. What would people think of me? That was even some of the the research that was saying, I don't want to be thought of like that. But are you willing to sacrifice your reputation? Not if you're not operating out of love. But with love, we're willing to lose and sacrifice for the sake of the other, which is what Jesus did. You see, you're willing even to give up your preferences. Now, this is really important. See, when, when you're thinking about being a part of God's mission, a lot of times the things that come into our mind is, yeah, but I really like it like this. This can even happen in a church setting. But I really like, you know, this kind of thing or this kind of music or this kind of decor or this kind of preaching or this kind of... And our preferences are the things that are most real to us. Instead of, yeah, but what's the best thing to be a part of God's mission? See, what are you willing to sacrifice if you're operating with a motive of love like Jesus has sent us with? You're willing to sacrifice anything and everything, which is what Jesus did for us as we even looked at what his love drove him to do. But but second thing is this, you are also coming with humility. You're coming with humility. Because if you know that you have been saved by love, not by anything that you've done, not by anything that's so special in you or anything that you've earned, but if you know, like the verses that we showed, looked at, if you know the reason that I'm a part of God's family is because of this great love he had for me, this great love with which he pursued me, this great love that he, if you know that, then here's what we, here's what happens. We're humble because we're saying, man, the reason I'm a part of God's family isn't because I'm so smart that I figured it out. It's not because I'm so good that God shows me. It's not because I'm so moral so that, you know, sometimes people will say something like, oh, I could never be a Christian, I'm not that good, or, you know, I don't like church people. And and they kind of think of it as like these good people. But what, what, what the Bible says, the verses that we looked at says, no, actually God's love goes after people that have turned against him. God's love goes after people that have betrayed him. God's love pursues those that wanted nothing to do with him, which means if I was saved because of love, and it should create in me a deep humility that says I'm not better than anybody. You might actually be smarter than me. You might be more moral than I am. You might be a better father, a better husband. You might be a better worker at your job because what makes me a Christian isn't that I'm awesome. It's that God has loved me. You see, that changes how you are a part of God's mission. It changes something because you know the reason I am who I am is because I've been loved. It also gives you a, humi- a humility that allows you to talk about yourself in an honest way. That you're able to, so, see sometimes people say, and um, this wasn't necessarily reflected on all the research, although it's in there a little bit, but not directly quoted in this way. But when I, when I talk to many people, a lot of the things that people will say is, man, I, I, don't, I don't, you know, it's hard for me to open up about my faith or talk to people because I don't want to be seen as a hypocrite. But actually your hypocrisy is one of the best things for God's mission if you take that by meaning this, that you say, yeah, I'm messed up too. I'm not saying you should just be like, yes, I am a hypocrite and I'm committed to that. I, I mean, that would be a, a bad position. Um, but, but what I'm saying is that you're able to say, yeah, I mess up. Yeah, I, I do things that I'm not supposed to. Yeah, I sin in ways all the time because what defines you is not your morality. If your motive is love, if you're being sent with love, it creates a new humility because you go, I know that what defines me is not my morality, not my being a good Christian, not my knowledge of the Bible. What defines me is I've been loved by somebody that I'm actually, I was against before he pursued me. It changes you to have a new sacrifice and a new sense of humility. See, being a part of God's mission can be really difficult. It can be really challenging, and the only thing that can actually drive us in ways that are healthy is if we're motivated by love. I mean, you can see how much better it would be if we had a, a perfect humility and a desire to sacrifice and intrinsically motivated. I mean, it would be so much better, right? So this is, this is the motives that we need, but how do we get this motivation? How do we get a motivation of love? Because you can say, man, that, yeah, that sounds great. I wish I was motivated by love. That would change everything. No guilt and and, and no just kind of should or, or no self-concern or burden, but just love. Yeah, man, give, sign me up. So how, how, do, how do we get that? How do we get a motivation of love? And I, I want to look at a story where Jesus sends out 72 of his disciples to be a part of his mission. He sends them out, and he tells them to go out into all the different cities and go out in all the different towns and And to to bring the kingdom of God, which is to to talk to people, to tell them the kingdom of God is here. God's reign, God's blessing, his relational presence, it's here, you can have it, it's available to you. He says, go out, and he sends them out, which is exactly what he does with us. And and scholars will even say that that 72 is representative of saying this is for everybody. So he sends them out, they come back. They come back, and, and they were successful they they saw some some great things and and let me let me tell you what they had going for them they listened to him he said you are sent and they said okay which some of us struggle with that but he said you're sent and they said let's do it let's go and they, they did it and they knew who jesus was accurately they were able to tell people he is the king he is the messiah and they were able to do it accurately they knew who he was they weren't crippled by doubts in that way. And they got the message right. They were able to know the kingdom of God is here and God invites you to be a part of it. They knew the message correctly. They had the right actions. They had the right beliefs. And they were successful. But there was something, there was something missing. And they come back happy, excited, joyful. And Jesus corrects them. Here's what he says. It says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Meaning, people that had been oppressed by demonic spirits, they were able to experience freedom. And they're like, this is amazing. And he said to them, so Jesus now says this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, which is him saying he has this vision of Satan's power and authority beginning now to diminish. Behold, I have given you authority To tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. This is him saying that it's not scorpions and serpents are not supposed to be taken literal here, but as metaphors of the powers of Satan and and his kind of forces to be able to say, look, I'm seeing this destroyed by what you are part of. Nevertheless, you never want to hear Jesus say nevertheless, right? Or your boss, right? He's like, you're doing a really good job at this and this. Nevertheless, you know, and Jesus says, nevertheless, and this is so important, do not rejoice in this. Don't rejoice that you went out and saw a bunch of cool things happen. Don't rejoice that you have power. Don't rejoice that you're seeing success and being a part of God's mission. Do not rejoice in that. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the key. This is the secret. How do, you, how do you get a motivation of love? Jesus gives it to us right here. He says that the right belief is not enough. He says that the right actions and doing what he's called you to do is not enough. That we have to have the right heart if we want to, have, if we want to see what God is actually calling us to. To be a part of, and we want to have a deeper sense of joy and power and, and sustainment in what has God in what God has called us to do. You see the secret to engaging in God's mission with power, with endurance, and even a, a deeper kind of joy is exactly what Jesus said. So I want to look at this phrase. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is what Jesus says. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This, this phrase, you should memorize this, this is the key. If you want to have more joy in what God has called you to do, if you want to have motives that are driven by love, which leads to humility and sacrifice, and you want to be able to start or sustain, this is the key phrase that, that Jesus gives to us that can change, that can change everything. So I want to just take this piece by piece. We'll start with your names. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, your name's a really important thing, right? I mean, just think about your name. It's a really important thing. I mean, it sums up so much of our identity. That's why if you even go to Starbucks and someone spells, like, people spell my name Kalum and I'm like, what? Or Kalib, and I'm like, that's not, like, there's, you know, it's okay. It's not like I flip out or, you know, and throw coffee all over people but uh, that many times, but it's, um, but it's... <laughs> But there's but there is some sense of like, hey, that's my name, you know, like don't don't mess with my name because our name is important. Our name is our identity. It kind of sums up who we are. In fact, I was just like, I wonder, you know, this will just give you if you've ever done this. You you even know there's something, even though it's kind of funny, that sort of irks you a little bit. Like if I put Caleb Davis, which is my name, into Google images, this is the first thing that comes up, which that's not so bad. This is Caleb Davis music. I think it's some I think it's an old CD cover or something. Uh, See, these are like these little discs uh, with a hole in it. Um, so it's Caleb But then the next one that comes up is this. Um, and then worst of all, the next one that comes up is this, which is Caleb Davis is a main character in Make It Pop, Woofer. This, is kid, this kid is all music, you know, talented DJ, whatever. So um, th- This is bad, right? So when I look at this, I'm like, I don't, I don't want, like, this is my name. I don't want to be associated with make it pop. I don't want to be associated with a criminal. That's my name. There's something important about your name because it's your identity. Or think about this. We're just going to talk about names for a little bit because I want you to get the sense of how important your name is and and what this verse even implies and and what it means. Think, Think about using someone's name or knowing somebody's name and how powerful that is. To know somebody's name, to use somebody's name. Uh, this is, and you, maybe you've read some books around this, if you're kind of in business or those of sales, those kinds of things. This is from the Washington Post, but it says, this is the career coach. It says, the power of using a name. And I'm not going to go through the whole article, but just this quote, which is from Dale Carnegie. I think it's from the how to win friends and influence people or something like that. But he says, a person's name is to him or her the sweetest and most important sound in any language. Now, it sounds kind of narcissistic, but it's often true, right? Say, man, a name is so powerful, which is why they teach people in sales. And if you, by the way, just in case you're wondering, why did that person keep using my name? This is why, because they teach you to trick people by just keep saying their name, you know, instead of, hey, dude, you want to buy this house? Or, hey, man, you want to sign up for this, uh, you know, financial service? Instead of saying that, you say, hey, Caleb, hey, Caleb, and you keep using the name, right? So now, if you've ever gone to a timeshare presentation, you're like, man, um, or how about this? Why names are so easy to forget. Think about this. You, you meet somebody, you forget their name. Or this happened to me um, uh, about a, I don't know, a couple months ago. We were out somewhere, and this person came up to me. and was like, hey, Caleb. And I was like, hey. And I was like, I have no idea who this is. For about three minutes, I had no idea who he was, and he was talking to me. And he's like, how are the kids? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, God, help me. And eventually, he said some things that reminded me what his name was and, and who he was. But names are easy to forget. Names are easy to forget because here's why. This is, they quote in this article from the Science Daily. It says, what's your name again? And just, just this headline. Lack of interest, not brain's ability, may be why we forget. So think about that. A name implies, and if you remember someone's name, it implies, I have an interest in this person. I have an interest in them. Actually like them, or I'm thinking about them. They also give this trick to remember people's names. If somebody's last name is Hefty and you notice they're left-handed, you could remember Lefty Hefty, <laughs> which sounds. <laughs> I just I just thought that was funny. It sounds like something Michael Scott would say. It's just like <laughs> Lefty Hefty, okay, So, <laughs> um, or this article, the power of using someone's name. Power of using someone's name says when you use someone's name in a conversation, you are pulling that tag of theirs. You are making them turn towards you every time their name is mentioned. So think about like if you're a teacher and you say kids' names, you kind of call them out. Or Your mom might have said, you know, like, Jack Dean Robertson, come here right now. You know, like they use the middle name because it's a way to pull someone towards you. A name is power to draw someone towards you. Think about even like that old, I don't know if it's a nursery rhyme or just a weird story of Rumpelstiltskin or whatever. He makes her guess the name. If you you don't know what I'm talking about, you can Google it later. But he's making her guess his name because even in kind of a lot of fantasy stories, the name has power. If you know someone's name, you can draw them to you. You can bring them to you. Let me give you another way to think about this. Think about uh, just you know if someone likes you even by the name. This is from Karah, which is just a place that people that don't have friends put, uh, search for questions. Uh, I'm kind of joking, but sorry if, you, if this is your question. It says, if a guy says good night with the individual's name at the end, so if a guy says to you, hey, good night, and then says your name, Alice, good night. I'm just making something up, right? Uh, at the end, does it mean that he likes her? And this person says, don't let yourself go down this road. It's only, <laughs> it's, it's only danger and pain. Okay, that sounds like experience. And this person says, on romantic comedies it does. But then he goes on, on terror movies it means the girl's in trouble. And on drama and thriller movies the guy can be in love but realize that the girl's the daughter of the man who killed his father and on whom he's for revenge. So, silly, but again, just think, I mean, there's, I was just Googling like the power of names and all this. So much comes out, right, because we know to know someone's name. To use someone's name is powerful. It's how we know someone's interested in us. It's how we know someone likes us. It's it's how we know someone is wanting to draw us to themselves. A name is our identity, and it's a powerful thing. And one last thing. Let me have you think about this. You know who this person is. You know their name, right? Right? Taylor Swift, T, T. Swift, right? Whatever you want to call her, T. Swizzle, whatever, okay? You know her name. You know this person's name. This is my friend Denzel, you know. You know this person, Dwayne Johnson or The Rock. You know their name, right? None of none of you are like, who are these people? You know their names. You know her name. You know her name. You know his name, right? He looks like Joe Dirt, but it's not. It's Justin Bieber. Okay, so you know their names. Right? You know their names. They don't know your names. Isn't that interesting? We know the names of hundreds of people, thousands probably, that don't know your name at all. I mean, they they don't know your name. They know, these guys know me, but they they, they don't know, they don't know our names, right? They don't know us. They couldn't say, hey, how's it going? They don't know our name. Now, think about that. That even says something else about names. That to know, we can know important people's names, but a lot of times important people don't know our names. We know all sorts of names of important people, but that doesn't mean that they know you. And yet, What this says is this. The most important person in the universe, the king of this world, God himself knows your name. He knows all of your identity. He knows your name, which is a thing that is important to draw you towards someone. It says that there's interest in you. It says there's even these power differentials that take place where we know the names of important people. And if you've ever had an important person know your name in some way, it can feel good. And it says, he knows your name. He knows your name. And I, I know that was a lot of setup, but it's such a powerful idea that we can just easily read by. But to say, God. Knows your name. Very important. But it doesn't actually even just say that he knows your name. It says that your names are written. And I won't spend as much time on this, but just think about this. Just think about the fact that God has written your name. Every swoop, every line, every dot or cross from first to middle to last, God has written your name. I think that's important because that just adds even another level of intimacy and personality to it. So if you think about it, you probably haven't written in full that many people's names. Even if you're somebody that likes to write a lot of letters and you probably haven't written that many people's names out in full. Because there's something deeply personal and intimate about writing a name and it says that God has written your name. It says that he's written our names in heaven. It says that he's written our names in heaven. See, the, the location matters. It doesn't say he's written them on a sticky note somewhere that he forgot crumpled up in a drawer in the kitchen, right? It doesn't say it's just on some random piece of paper that's in the office drawer, that your name is written in heaven. Now, think about that. When, when people are born, their name is written and it's recorded somewhere, important. Their name is written on a birth certificate, and it's recorded in a place for safekeeping for a matter of official record. Somebody dies, their name is written, and it's recorded as a matter of official record because it's saying this is important. They don't just say, well, we'll remember their name. We don't need a birth certificate. Oh, we'll remember they died. We don't. We, it doesn't matter. It's a matter of official record and importance to write a name and put it in a specific location, when people are married, their names are written and filed and signed and notarized to say this is filed in an important place, which means it's official, it's secure, it's permanent, it matters. That when names are written, when names are written and put in the right place, it means something. I mean, in when, when, When they were hearing this, that their names are written in heaven, names at this time would be written often to include a a genealogy or family tree. So part of saying it's written in heaven is you are a part of the family tree now of God's, Or a part of, there was citizen lists as there are today of who is a citizen in the registry. So say you are a citizen now of God's kingdom. You are a citizen with all the benefits that that implies, with all the the privileges that are given in being a part of this family or in being a part of this kingdom. To say that your names are written in heaven means there's a sense of permanency and security, that God has filed it in a place that says, this doesn't change, this matters, and you've received all the gifts, all the privilege, all the benefits of me knowing your name and filing it, recording it. But finally, he doesn't even just say, know that your names are written in heaven or believe that your names are written in heaven. The secret to a motivation of love that continues to propel us is to rejoice that your names are written in heaven. To rejoice that your names are written. Not just to know it, not just to say, okay, that's nice that it's up there. That's, that's why I wanted to spend a lot of time kind of talking about what these ideas even mean is because this is part of what it means to rejoice. It's to say, what does that mean? How can I rejoice that my name's in, written in heaven if I don't really even get that? But Jesus is saying, here's what I want you to do is you go out and you're part of my mission. Don't just look at the results that take place. Don't just know what you're supposed to do. Don't just do what you're supposed to do. It's got to come from somewhere. There's got to be motives of love that are propelling you so that there's deep humility and sacrifice. And in order to have that, rejoice that I know your name, that I've written your name, that I've made it permanent and secure. Rejoice, let your heart be filled again knowing what I've done for you, Jesus says, to rejoice, to see it, to delight in it feel what he says. Listen, if, if you're not a Christian, if you're not sure kind of what you believe, this is, this is what Jesus says is available for you. This deep personal experience of your name being known by him and being permanently secured by him. Maybe, maybe you are a Christian. You're just kind of struggling in life and there's, there's just, man, life's just hard. Maybe there's no motivation for mission. Maybe there's no motivation for anything to, to follow God in any sort of way. Jesus says, look, rejoice again in this. See what I've done in this. Come back to this again. And this rewires our hearts. This is how. Uh, maybe, maybe you're a part of God's mission. Maybe you're doing it, but you're tired, kind of burnt out. Maybe you're doing it in a self-righteous way. Maybe it's because it's not coming from love. Maybe it's because you haven't, you're, you're not rejoicing. You're not rejoicing in your name being written, but you're just thinking about what it is you're supposed to do. Or maybe you just struggle at all to even engage at all. You hear us talk about this at church and God's mission and whatever. It's just like, okay, whatever. But you don't really care because you're not thinking about your name and all the privileges and benefits and blessings that God has given to you. You struggle to love people in your life. You struggle to be motivated by love to want for them what God wants for them, he says, let this happen. Remember what I've done for you. Remember how I've loved you. That fills your heart to then be able to give this to others. If if we ever want to move past kind of a religious, self-righteous, guilt-driven attitude, then we need to be confronted with the nevertheless of Jesus and filled with a new kind of joy. So here's what I would just say to you in in closing. God God wants more for us than just doing what he says or knowing what he says. He wants joy for us. He wants people to be a part of his family and for us to be involved in it, invited to be a part of it. What would happen if you wanted to do this? What would happen if like the gym people, you loved doing this? Wouldn't things change? Here's what this means as we close. Maybe it means you need to confess to God. God, I'm sorry, this hasn't been my motivation. God, I haven't actually loved people. Maybe we need to start with confession. And, and then secondly, it means that we actually obey what Jesus said, that we rejoice in our name being written. Which can mean right now, it can mean as we take communion and sing songs. But, but you know, one of the things that I even did this week was just take time to sit down and go, I'm going to rejoice in all the benefits of what it means that God wrote my name what it means that God brought me into his family. And I would encourage you this week even to write down what is, what is the benefits I've received in being a part of God's family so you can look at that and rejoice again. When we come and take communion, communion is a thing that Christians do to remember what it took for Jesus to write our name in his book. See when we take communion we remember that Jesus came in love and his body was broken and his blood was shed and listen our names are written in blood. What it took for Jesus to bring us into his book, what it took for us to bring him, to what it took for him to bring us in his family, in his kingdom. He didn't just write the name on there. It took him dying in our place, shedding his blood for us so that all of our guilt was removed. And he gave us all of his righteousness and purity so that we can enjoy and be in his family. So would you pray with me as we take communion and then sing a few songs in response to this. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have written our names in heaven. If we're in your family, if we are a part of your family, it's because you have drawn us, you have pursued us, you have loved us. I thank you that you know each name in this room. You know each person in this room. And there is a deep connection that you want us to experience with you. You want us to rejoice again in what you've done for us. I pray that even as we sing, that these truths would become more real to our hearts and the joy would even deepen so that we may be a part of what you have called us and sent us to do.